Hello everyone, I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another edition of Rural Routes, the program where we gather every day at this time. Well, Dale Ludwig, we do it Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather is continue to address the issues between rural and urban America. We've often and long wanted some coverage of major media about what's happening in the agricultural world I'm not sure that anybody ever wanted it to be about euthanizing animals, but we are here now. And so I thought we would just continue that discussion because joining me, longtime friend from the Show Me State, the great state of Missouri, Dale Ludwig, current president of the Protect the Harvest and longtime executive of the Missouri Soybean Association and initiating programs to bring about solutions. Dale, I thought it was time to get you on here and you would lay out all of the solutions for every challenge the consumer and the farmer has today. Is that okay with you? <laughs> we can talk about it. it, it there, there are lots of opportunities for solutions today. Boy, isn't that the truth. You know, you said something just before we went on the air, and um, I, I know that there's a lot of times that i felt... Like, I just don't have the right solution. I don't have the right thing to do. I'm, I'm trying to get around and saying, yeah, I feel like I'm, I'm helpless. Don't know what to do. I don't think I'm alone in that feeling right now. We have a serious bottleneck. We have a serious uh, misfiring in our food structure. And where everybody's kind of just waiting for somebody to have the right answer. But I don't know that there is a right answer. It's just one, an- one day at a time. Is that how you see it? it yeah, I Many of the things that we are doing aren't the right answer. You know, I've given a substantial amount of time thinking about how do we solve this problem, and that you know you got to get the get these processing plants running again. Mm-hmm. And even if that happens, we have a backup, uh, as I understand, where we're still going to like have to dispose of or depopulate, at least in the hog industry, and probably in in poultry and beef as well. And that, that just uh, that just doesn't make sense to me. It, it It's a way out, I guess, but it's certainly not a way through. And, uh, boy, it's, it's disturbing. It just gives you a bad feeling right there in the old gut when you start thinking about putting all that time, effort, and work and producing a product and then can't get it harvested or can't get it processed, which seems to be exactly what's happening. And, and like, disposing of it, to euthanasia is like that is not the right answer, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Yeah, you know, two weeks ago we were talking about what a waste and uh, how can you take this milk and just dump it, just find no use whatsoever. And we saw it coming. And uh, I've been saying for over a week that, <clears throat> excuse me, we'll be over 1 million pigs. I'm still hopeful. I'm very optimistic that we can get through this cattle thing because cattle have the ability to stay in their environment for a greater period of time than the chicken or the pig. But um, even with the announcement yesterday, which I, I did not know much of anything about the Defense Production Act dating back to 1950, that's not going to be the immediate cure, even though it is a good first step. Uh, Right. And, you know, at the same time, it, at the end of the day, you have to have workers that are running these plants if you're going to, uh, if you're going to harvest animals. So 
and I I don't know I don't I don't know how you do that without like finding able bodies will and willing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of these people are scared to come to work, and who, you know who can blame them? It's like uh, you know I had a discussion weeks ago. It's like people aren't afraid of getting sick, but they are afraid of dying. Right. So it's like you know if you have if you have somebody that is in, in all the things that we've heard about the coronavirus. If you look at the numbers, they're not all that. They're not all that bad compared to a bunch of other things. And I was having a discussion with, with my youngest son last night about, uh, take a look how many people get killed in car wrecks every year. And we still take that risk by going and getting in a car and, and driving somewhere. So, and we were kind of talking about the right way to go back to work. But, you know, at the end of the day, we have to have willing people and in to protect the harvest, we were trying to come up with a solution, a way through, if you will, as opposed to a way out. And that was you know, one of the things that we suggested that potentially using like the National Guard in order to uh, to help fill in some of these spots in these plants. So, you know, keep trying to figure out the right way. And, uh, you know, I don't think we're going to get there in all ways anyway. You know, uh, my governor, which I continue to be very proud of, Governor Pete Ricketts, uh, he's been doing his daily press briefing uh, since, well, I think this is the third week. And yesterday he had uh, what was just a fantastic analogy. And he said, and, and it's in reference to how do we get businesses back open all across, and in his case, it's all across Nebraska. And he said, well, you got to look at it like this. The absolute safest way to get out on the road and drive somewhere is five miles an hour. Nobody is going to drive five miles an hour because you just don't get there quick enough. So as we're reopening these businesses and, and we think about public safety, we can't go five miles an hour, but we don't want to go 85 miles an hour right out of the gate either. And I thought that that was just such a, a great analogy because, as, as you bring up, 42,000 people a year are killed in automobile accidents each year. We somehow come to accept that when we hit 40,000 people dying of a virus that we're told died of that virus. I think that's still the biggest unknown in the whole situation is how it there's a lady who I know whose husband died of a heart issue, absolutely had a heart issue, and they labeled it a, a COVID-19 death. Regardless, when we hit 40,000 deaths with COVID, everybody's like, oh, my goodness, this thing's out of control. And we're still less than the a- average for seasonal flu. It just seems to be harder and harder for people to keep everything in perspective, Dale. It, yeah, I think, in again, it's like you start throwing those numbers around. Anytime you put a thousand behind anything, and especially if it's a death, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, it sounds, sounds very serious. And if it happens to be somebody you know or one of your family members, it, it obviously is serious. But, uh, you know, there's risk in, in everything we do. And there's people that die and get killed for a whole bunch of different reasons, but it doesn't mean that normally it doesn't mean everybody stays home for months. If you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I just think we've set a horrible precedent on this particular situation, but uh, I do have an uh, interesting tidbit that 
I got firsthand, so I know it to be true, and it comes from one of the pork packing plants in the state of Missouri. As of Friday, 39 people in that plant tested positive for COVID. This particular plant is doing a very rigorous testing program so that they can remain open and remain uh, focused primarily on public health. But what I found to be most interesting about those 39 people, Dale, is that more than half of them were USDA employees in the plant, not the workers who work on the line. That just perplexes me. That is perplexing. <laughs> what does that say? So, what does that really mean? <laughs> well, you've had a chance to think that longer than I have, but uh, I did. Gosh, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, where, uh, where have they been? Who have they been exposed to? Right. And, and then, and by, just to show you how rigorous this testing is, the non-USDA folks, they're able to track and they want to find the origin. That's that's the whole way and the reason for testing. And the rest of the folks that tested positive who work on the lines uh, all come out of the same housing unit. So just to give folks an idea of, you know, the in-depth information people are compiling. They knew where they lived, where it originated from. But then you had 22 USDA inspectors that there was no commonality whatsoever other than being at the plant. What the heck's up with that? And that's why everything becomes such a complex issue to try to figure out. But I thought I love Dale Ludwig's comment. We're going to work through this. We will take a break. We'll get back with more Rural Route, Dale Ludwig. And you know what we need to do? What we probably should have done at the very beginning? Talk more about Protect the Harvest, the origins, where we're at, and what we're going to do. We'll do that with more Rural Route after this. And right off the bat today, I want to talk about the Certified Piedmontese Opportunity. Things continue to go forward in a fast way in the world of Lone Creek Cattle Company and the Certified Piedmontese business because, you see, we work with smaller packers. It all stays more local. That's why we primarily focus on Great Plains cattlemen. Most importantly, the consumer reaps a reward from a tender beef product thanks to the Piedmontese cattle. Get more details about what the myostatin gene may mean to your bank account because you get paid better for the calves that are produced. Cattlemen? Calf producers getting paid a $180 premium. That's what we're talking about. More details at LoneCreekCattleCo.com. Ask for Marlon Will. Welcome back. Roll Routes, the program. Dale Ludwig, my guest, current president of the Protect the Harvest. How long have you been retired from Missouri Soybean? Well, I, I don't call it retired. I've, I've been away from the job at Missouri Soybean for about six years. And since then, I've like been working for a company called Agronext as well as uh, have gotten involved some in the, the hemp industry. And that's uh, fascinating and challenging like a whole bunch of other things and will be affected by the, the COVID-19 mm-hmm. uh, virus that we have going on right now as well. But uh, six years since... Uh, since I was living. Uh, because everybody wants to study terminology and language, I did say retired from Missouri Soybean. I didn't mean to indicate that you were sitting there on your on your porch and your bibs 
uh, just rocking the day away. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, the retired isn't, uh, it's not any terminology that fits with me or in my future. It's like, yeah, uh, I just, I just don't, don't think about retirement. I guess at some point in time, it's not out of the question, but it's not something I think about. Protect the harvest. Um, I think most people got an idea where it started, what it's about, but Missouri is the perfect place to have the president from because really the impetus comes back to an initiative in the state of Missouri. But you want to kind of walk us through the history and what Forrest Lucas's vision and, and passion has been? Yeah, it, and and that's a great point. It's always important to mention Forrest Lucas because without uh, Forrest Lucas, we wouldn't have a protect the harvest and we wouldn't have gotten the right to farm um, language passed in the state of Missouri, which was about 10 years ago. Uh, seems It seems like it couldn't be that long, but long ago, but it was. It's been a lot of effort trying to communicate how important that agriculture was to, uh, you know, people in Missouri and how important it it was that we like made sure that people had the right to farm if you will or had to, that we weren't passing legislation that made it increasingly difficult or impossible to try to feed the feed the country and uh, so after we got that that uh, issue passed uh it we decided that there, we had to spend enough time and effort and knowledge that we needed to keep that effort going so that we could at least educate people about how important farming was. And then it kind of went from there to protecting people's rights in other states when they tried to pass legislation that was, you know, whether it was eggs or even, you know, dogs or whatever it might, might be, or just, uh, you know, sow crates in some states, but at the end of the day, it was um, how do how do we keep a good thing going and turn it into a continuing effort to educate people on agriculture? And that is that ten years? Has it been ten years? It has, yeah. I wasn't really sure when the I knew it had to be ten or more years that protect the harvest was born and and the problem now is that uh, we talk about the immediate crisis, which is the ability to have a place to go with our farm products because vegetables in California are no different. We're plowing them under as well. But the biggest challenge dale and and this is something I've been working on for twenty years, as you know, is how do you decide which one to work on because the demand for somebody to assist in your rights evading you are endless. I mean, you could get a new one every day, a new project. So you have to really decide which one is a priority. And that's when it becomes tough. Well, there's no question that's true. And, and it's, um, on with organizations like this, there's never enough money to go around. There's never, you know, you have to, we have a lot of volunteer people and a lot of volunteer time, which is what I do with this organization. But uh, this one, when we start thinking about not processing food, 
that is is ready to go to market and ready to go out to people and you think of what the end result can be and that is people not having enough to eat um now this is i think the most serious issue that we've ever tried to address and i don't know how good a job that we're going to we're going to do but we're we're trying to make sure that people in washington at the very highest level understand um, how serious it is, and what are the solutions? How do we come up with with uh, an answer to making sure these plants get reopened and get running again? And in a discussion with some of the other other people that I run things by, um, you know, the National Guard idea came up, and so um, yeah, there aren't many solutions. So was that was one that we've we tried to. Uh, yeah. I tried to get that message to the president. And honestly, my first response to that when when I heard about the National Guard, I thought well, there's just no way to get these guys into these plants and make a difference quick enough. Uh, a packing plant owner who's a farmer involved with two plants, he actually em- embraced the idea. And um, your director of agriculture, Chris Chan, I, I think this director of agriculture is the actual terminology, uh, embraced it as well, and I, I just remind people that the difference between the National Guard and all other forms of the military is the National Guard is at the direction of each governor in each state, so this seems like something closer to the land, closer to home, if we put it that way. And uh, by the way, my friend said it would take seven days to get them fully trained to keep this thing running. So it's important that we start today. <laughs> Because tomorrow it'll be six days, and the next day it'll be five. But if we wait till next week, then it's 14 or something longer than that. But, you know, Trent, I've often, I've said a number of times in the past that, you know, part of the reason that people don't understand agriculture and farming is that Mm -hmm. they've never gone to a grocery store, and there's not been food there to buy. And as we move forward, I'll never be able to say that again. Because I was in I was in a grocery store a month ago, and there were there was nothing in the meat case. Nothing. Nothing. Now I got replenished pretty quickly, but whenever we had to scare when people were buying toilet paper and all those Mm -hmm. things, there was there was oh there might have been hot dogs, but there wasn't uh, wasn't beef and pork, fresh beef and pork. Right. I I just haven't experienced that. In fact, I stopped in Grand Island on my way home uh, from delivering some pigs Sunday because I had a honeydew project. But I just wanted to go in there and see what was going on. And I could not see any uh, lack of supply whatsoever. My friends in the meatpacking world tell me that if something doesn't change, and that's, I think, what got the attention of it was Vice President uh, Pence who actually carried the water, so to speak, that uh, led to the Defense Production Act being implemented yesterday uh, because they tell me within two weeks there won't be meat available to distribute to these stores. And it's just hard to imagine that. And, And people, Dale, they just can't get their head around that at all when they see animals being euthanized, which is happening, and they don't have access to food in the store either. It's just a crazy dichotomy. 
Well, it's no, uh, there's no question. It's something that, that I've never lived through. And as far as I know, uh, other than maybe a limited local scale, nobody else in this country in my lifetime certainly mm-hmm. has. And it's, you know, it's part of why, you know, I, I, I use that analogy about nobody's ever gone to the grocery store and there hasn't been food there to buy. And, you know, I've, I've, I've experienced it. I, you know, I don't remember four weeks ago, whenever we were, everybody was like, you know, running out and buying everything they could. There were, there were a number of veg, canned vegetables and things like that, that were, were out at the store that I went to. But the, but the meat case for the most part was there other than, like I said, a few hot dogs, maybe, but uh, yeah, it's, it's something that, you know, it, it's, it's like, perhaps the most serious problem the most serious issue that i've like ever tried to think through in agriculture yeah it's roll out we're halfway through we will continue to try to think through it just seeking solutions but really there is no one absolute solution there has to be a series of little ones that's what we're seeking today dale ludwig my guest we'll take a break we'll be back in the second half of roll out right after this Once again, I want to talk about what nobody really wants to talk about. Why are individuals immune compromised? Because the federal government has been giving bad dietary advice for 40 years. That's why the Nutrition Coalition would like to fix that. And in order to fix that, we need your assistance. So, I'm not asking for money. I'm only asking for your participation and awareness. Go to nutritioncoalition.us. Once again, more smoothly, nutritioncoalition.us and become informed and armed with the facts. Welcome back to Rural Route. Trent Luce alongside Dale Ludwig joining us from central Missouri. Um, are you a Missouri or a Missouri guy? You're south of I-70. Um, I grew up in Missouri, guy. <laughs> Yesterday, I had my friend Andrew Henderson on from the UK, which we do every Tuesday, and uh, we lapsed into talking about state mottos or slogans, whichever you want to call it. He really struggled with the show me state. He just couldn't get his head around that. (laughs) I don't know why. (laughs) Do you know the origin of that, by the way? Oh, some people give Harry Truman credit for saying it's a state of Democrats, Tucklebur, and something else, and uh, it's it's a show me state. You have to show me. So Harry Truman at least gets partial credit. I don't know if that's true, but that's that's one of the versions I've heard at least. Harry Truman also said, "No man should be president that doesn't understand the hog." <laughs> Well, I I wouldn't disagree with that. <laughs> of course, my favorite Harry Truman quote ever was, it takes great skill, diligence, and work ethic to build a barn. And any jackass can kick it down in three minutes. <laughs> that is what we're living through. That's what it amounts to right there. Hey, Dan, if we can, uh, I want to diverge a bit because of, there's, you brought up something that you work on at some level. Uh, I don't. I think it's outside of protect the harvest. Doesn't matter. Uh, the hemp business. 
that seems to be intriguing to me, and I don't spend enough time talking about it. We we have been told that this is going to be the end all be all for helping farmers and diversification. Now all of a sudden we have all of this hemp growing. We have no processing facilities. Oh wait, does that sound familiar? What's the real, <laughs> what's going on with that? Where are we at in that particular process right now? I uh, I think you summed it up pretty pretty well in that you know, we're growing hemp, especially for CBD. Um, and we don't have many places to process it. And we did come up with, uh, we grew a lot more biomass. A lot more people grew it last year than we thought we're going to. The quality isn't particularly good, which causes, uh, those intermediate people that have to buy it and process it being, that can be pretty selective, especially when there's a lot of product around. But we real quickly realized that when, we haven't really gotten FDA involved and done the work that it takes to get get approval for the, these things to go into different products and make real claims. And quite honestly, I've, I've said all along we need a, we need more testing on these products, and we need to we need to make sure that they do what we even suggest. You know, it's one thing to make a claim, which FDA doesn't allow you to do, but there are a bunch of people that do at least make suggestions on what it does and truth of the matter is is that most of the stuff with hemp we don't know and the same thing is true when it comes to comes to fiber and seed and we're not that far along with the with fiber as we are with the with like the cbd or cannabinoids but um yeah it's i i think the industry at some point in time is is going to be successful and add some other alternatives but we're, but we're not there yet why is the the fiber infrastructure? Now, I mean, it has to be profitability, right? I mean, if it was profitable, it'd be happening. Uh, I think it will happen. It's just so it's just so early that uh, you know, it was a 2018 farm bill signed in December of 2018 that actually made it legal, and so uh, we're just we're trying to figure out the end uses and it takes major investments to get into those things. And it takes different types of fiber for different types of products. It takes a different type of fiber for paper than it does textiles. Um, and so oh, it's a pretty steep learning curve and uh, I think eventually we'll get there, but we need to do, you know, we need to do that block and tackling thing like, actually put variety trials out and figure out what varieties work in Missouri or Nebraska or wherever it might be and what the what the quality is of that end product and where does it fit in that industry but I, I think we're going to get there I, I will tell you that that uh, you know the last year and a half has been has been really exciting just kind of to start working in a whole new industry and uh, you know I'm I hope I can have at least uh, some input and some uh, opportunities to move move the industry forward. So uh, just give us an idea. I don't know if you have a handle, probably nationally. How how much ahead of the cart did the horse get in terms of production before the infrastructure for processing was in place? How much hemp are we growing? Uh, well, as far as how much we need, we probably grew twice as much last year as what we need. There's, 
There's a whole bunch oh, of... Oh, so there's a bunch of corn farmers growing it that just love to grow stuff without knowing what the market really is. Is that what you said? Yeah, well, and you heard all the stuff about people being able to make $40,000 $40, an acre by growing it, and that sure got people's attention. And so you had uh, you had people that went out and they wanted to plant like 100 acres when the truth of the matter is, is what we know today is five acres would be a huge amount. And that's part of the reason we came up with poor quality material. But yeah, but there's probably, and they refer to it as hanging. We have we have hemp hanging, which they hang it to dry, right? So they they hung it to dry, and now they don't know what to do with it. So kind of an interesting term, I think. We have, we have this many pounds of hemp hanging. Is that uh, similar to tobacco hanging? Yes, exactly. And that's mm. why it kind of fit really well in, you know, in Kentucky. Plus, they had the political wherewithal to get some things done and get it get it approved but in many cases with hemp it was like looking for alternatives to to growing tobacco and the cbd in the cbd world um you know it, it's a whole lot like the tobacco industry was a lot of hand labor mm-hmm. um and you had to you had to dry the material and a lot of people at least Right now, are drying it by hanging it. Uh, you know, I think there's other alternatives coming somewhere in the future, but uh, it's a lot like the tobacco industry. So, Dale, I'd, I'd like you to look into your crystal ball because I, I want to pull on your years of service to the Missouri soybean growers, to agriculture as a whole, involvement today with uh, consulting and hemp or, or whatever the products may be, work with Protect the Harvest pre-covid-19 because this is not not normal in any way shape or form the, there was a, a lot of financial stress on farmers from coast to coast whether you're growing tomatoes in the central valley of california oranges in florida or pigs in iowa or corn in illinois what do you see as the answer to true sustainability not the hijacked word of sustainability but true sustainability of farmers and diversified farming for the future? Man, that, that's a great question. Um, how about a, how about a couple droughts? <laughs> I don't, I don't mean to be facetious, but normally it's some sort of crop failure that it right. gets us out of an oversupply uh, type situation. But, uh, I, I, you know, we need, we need real leadership in agriculture and some people that, I, I think the hemp thing is one of the one of the answers to give give us more crops to grow. Um, so we're not uh, this this whole ethanol thing has got us in a real real bind right now. Um, gotten it, and I I said this I go they'll never be able to get rid of ethanol because if they do, you know corn will be worth whatever the last extra bushel of corn you have that you have to utilize somehow. And right now that appears to be about three dollars. Um, if they continue to shut ethanol plants down, I can't imagine it not going lower. So, uh, you know, leadership, uh, utilization, and I think in, in a lot of respects we've done a reasonable job at utilizing things. In, in some cases, maybe where they didn't partic- particularly fit that well. But uh, boy, I, I, that is a great question, and. Uh, I just think we have to look at additional things that we can do. 
so we're not overproducing in every commodity that we have, which is kind of where we are. E- even pre, even even pre COVID nineteen. Right. Okay, so let's just break that down. I have a minute and a half in this segment. Thirty three percent. I'm just using rough numbers. Thirty three percent of corn has been going into our ethanol plants. Thirty three percent has been fed to livestock. On April 29th, 2020, we're uncertain about the numbers of animals that will be fed through 2021 because we're euthanizing, we're aborting, we're doing things that's going to disrupt our normal demand for feedstuffs for livestock. Uh, everybody remembers the Monday that oil, you actually got paid to take oil, pun intended, um, but it went below zero. Nobody knew that could happen. Putting a damper on all of these ethanol plants. So, 66 nearly 70 percent of the demand for i'm talking about corn in this particular case is uh somewhat in doubt for 2021 uh, i'm trying to find a silver lining in this storm because right now the implication is the the destruction of uh, farm animals and more importantly the owners of those farm animals in their balance sheets but for a crop farmer coming into the next year where do you find that optimism? <laughs> in my my opinion, you know, agriculture is facing some grave, grave days. I was going to say decisions, but those those decisions are going to be made for a lot of farmers, and that's that's unfortunate. But yeah, I've had this discussion mm-hmm. over and over the last uh, you know last ten days, and it just uh, yeah. It, it's hard to figure out where where we go from here. You know, it's like you know, these poor dairy farmers have been they've been beat up for the last three or four years. And when there was a glimmer of hope and light, uh, all of a sudden, you know, this COVID nineteen thing comes along. They turn schools out, they shut down restaurants, and the uh, you know class one milk just uh, that market seems to. Seems to dry up or disappear, but it, you know you can you go down to the different commodities. I I wish, you know, I'm a glass half full sort of guy, and I'm the I'm the person that's sitting in groups of people saying, you know, what is the what is the way to fix this issue with, um, you know, processing capacity, and uh, you know there are few really good answers. That's where we'll pick it up when we come back. What are the few good answers, and where do we look for the future of profitability? Dale Ludwig, one more segment right after this. Every day we're in the pig business. Pork, bread gilts, show pigs, pork, bacon. Wait, wait, we're out of bacon until next week. But we have a lot of pork chops and sausage. Get details about our program at Team Loose on Facebook. It's that simple. Welcome back to Roll Route. Trent Luce alongside Dale Ludwig joining us from Central Missouri, current president of Protect the Harvest. And, um, yeah, so I didn't mean to be a Debbie Downer, but a dose of reality has to come into play. And here's the other part of the equation, Dale. The world's population continues to grow. More mouths need to be feed, and the economic state of the American farmer, I think we could argue will have never been worse by the end of 2020. So the reason that we're having this discussion is to think through these things and figure out how to position 
where we can be a part of the solution. That, that's why you're here. That's why you're sitting in the hot seat answering all these tough questions. Well, it's a, we're discussing the tough questions. Um, I don't know. I don't know what all the answers are. Um, you know, leadership, but it always comes down when things are successful, it comes down to smart, successful people that are showing leadership or good management or whatever it might be. So, uh, you know, we need, we need more discussions like we're having right now so that we get our best people thinking about uh, where, where are opportunities as we move forward in 2020 and into 21 and especially, you know, it, 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 it's kind of, it's kind of grim for agriculture, but it's not so, it's not so bright for everybody else if you if we're talking about not having enough food to go around. Yeah, okay, we could have the same discussion about the medical community because while they're worried about medical communities being over flooded, they're furloughing medical workers because they don't have enough to do. Hospitals are going to be in the same financial position. I can't believe restaurants are going to be any better. So uh, there is the comfort, I reckon, is that finally we're not in this ship alone. Yeah, and, and what a uh, what a discouraging thing to say that misery lights com- company and we got lots of. <laughs> but I, I'm just going to be very boisterous in saying that there's going to be a ton of people look to Washington D.C. for the solution, and the the only thing Washington D.C. is going to have are more hurdles for us to cross. I hope that we figure out. Right here at home, whether you're in the banking business, the insurance business, the farming business, the medical community, that schools, schools aren't going to be in any better shape, by the way. Um, But the answer is going to reside within your own county, within your own state. Going to D.C. with the handout will not be a part of the solution. You agree or disagree? Oh, I totally agree. I've never thought Washington, D.C. was the answer. And I, boy, I, I think like, spraying money around the way we have uh, and it's going to it's going to make the problem worse as we uh, as we move forward and how can you how can you get everything so wrong where you're giving the LA Lakers 5 million dollars or whatever and you're giving Harvard you know 10 million when these you know Harvard's got a a 40 billion dollar endowment how can you get that so wrong well, you just look at the the obesity in that six point two trillion dollar first round of stimulus package. You know, millions of dollars to the Kennedy Center in in D.C. And the minute they get it, they lay off half their people and then give a five million dollar contribution to the Democratic Party. That's where it's got to be. The answer has to be in accountability where this money goes. What are the Lakers exactly. going to do with that money anyway? Yeah, they're going to pay some guard to play for him for about two games. <laughs> and uh, and how, do you, how do you guard somebody when you cannot be closer than six feet on the basketball court? <laughs> that's, that's a real dilemma. Is how are we going to have all these sporting activities when you have to stay 6.2 feet away from each other? That's <laughs> uh, why well, you can't. Yeah. You can't do that. Uh, protect the harvest. I'd like to finish up here in the last half of the segment, Dale, just coming back to, uh, I can't say thank you enough because, you know, I've been out here on a 
no budget whatsoever doing these things for 20 years. And I, I know that he doesn't want us to say it, but the amount of money, time, and effort that Forrest Lucas put into it, and I'm including everybody in the umbrella because you're not paid. Uh, you put a lot of time and money into it too. But just the millions of dollars that have been put in by this this man and his commitment to making a difference and everybody who's volunteered, um, th- there should be people lining up to say, how can I help? That's really what should be going on with the Protect the Harvest movement. Yeah, there should, and, and there are people. We have lots of people that volunteer, and, and, and fortunately or otherwise, the uh, a lot of these people don't particularly have a lot of money to give, and, and it does take money if you're going to have professional people working for you and working for you full time. It does take money, and and you got to you got to just take your hat off to uh, Forrest Lucas and his wife Charlotte for like supporting this cause for the last ten years, and and it has been seriously millions of dollars that this man has put into trying to support agriculture and trying to get people to understand. You know, how important agriculture is and how with uh, you know if we don't have if we don't have agriculture and farmers we don't have food and, and, uh, and I was having this discussion with Lynn Klippenstein here oh, a few days ago about it might not be all bad for somebody to to go for a change and there not be food available how uh, uh, but man it's like you sure don't want that to go on very long it's not eating is not very sustainable, Trent. Okay, first of all, you had to go and one-up me because I gave all the credit to Forrest. You included Charlotte. That was my bad. Way to go. You, you're going to get the shiny bronze star for the day on that. Secondly, I'm all about people going a week without food. I think that would be absolutely fantastic. The downside, the collateral damage is the farmers who have built everything don't have the flexibility to allow people to go for a week without food because we're going to eliminate a lot of people in agriculture again. That we just can't continue to do that. Trent, uh, I, I I don't know the answer right now. We are in a we're in a critical situation, and I wish I had lots of good answers to tell you. But you know, there's some of these like, you know, what we thought. 10 years ago were large pork producers, but in the big scheme of things, you know, they're, they're not a, a Tyson or they're not, uh, you know, one of these people that have hundreds of thousands of sows, but they're, they're large family operations. Boy, those guys, you know, they, they have done a wonderful job or they wouldn't be in business today, but how do they survive? How does a, you know, where and where's the price? You know, we had this discussion a little earlier. Where's the price of corn going to go to? And um, I don't know many people. I know there's a lot of people that haven't been making any money at almost four dollar corn, and it isn't going to work below three dollars. Yeah, I just want to repeat something that I've obviously been saying more often this week, but been saying for twenty years. Um, you know, people are critical of the foreign-owned meat packing plants that we have, including me. The problem every step of the way, Dale, was that we had nobody domestically that was willing to step up and invest in the future of meat production in the United States. Until we had about five years ago, pig farmers 
all across pig farming country who said, we're going to control this. And they have one of the plants that we talked about earlier in St. Joe, Missouri. There's one in Sioux City. There's one in Wyndham, Minnesota. There's one in Coldwater, Michigan. By the way, those domestically built farmer-owned plants, if I can call them that, are still running today. The foreign-owned plants, particularly Smithfield and JBS, are not. So when it, when it all shakes out, I hope that everybody understands that food production is a means of national security. And when it gets to be nut-cutting time, pun intended, the people who are vested in this country are going to be the ones that will figure out a way to make it work. The others turn tail and look for greener grass. Where do you want your future to be? That's the question of the day. Uh, I, th- I think we have a lot more answers today than we did even four months ago because of the whole COVID-19 virus situation. Uh, we uh, we realized that we put way too much reliance on China uh, for medicine, for a whole bunch of other things. And I do, I do see that as one of the positive things that's coming out of, uh, out of the situation that we're going through right now. Uh, the other thing that's, that's happened, a big part of the reason that people moved to Asia to, with processing or production plants was because of cheap labor. It's not near as cheap in China as it once was. There's other places today that are cheaper. But we've also figured out a lot of automation that is going to make the U.S. more competitive moving forward. Plus, you mentioned this national security issue, and uh, you know, that's that's one of the good things that's going to come out of the, the virus that we've like figured out how to struggle through here. And it's like, uh, you know, what, what did the president say? You don't want the you don't want the solution or the cure to be worse than the problem. And in some ways, I, I think we're, we're almost there. Yeah. On uh, a final note, the last minute, which horse are you betting on this weekend in the Kentucky Derby? You know, I went to the Kentucky Derby here a few years ago, <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was a fascinating spectacle. <laughs> did, but, did you have your mint julep? I did. I had a, had a mint julep, and I was, it was just, uh, <laughs> just watching the people and uh, how they were dressed and all that that sort of stuff. But the one thing I did learn when I was there, I wasn't very good at picking horses, but it was uh, it was fun and it was fascinating. I, but, I think uh, we would have that in common. We're better at drinking mint julep than picking winning horses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> That'll do it. We have successfully journeyed down the road connecting rural and urban America. My thanks to Dale Ludwig. Check out Protect the Harvest online and contribute, even if it's just volunteering your time. No better cause. We both remind you that all roads do lead to a rural route. Cows are not destroying the environment. <laughs> Pigs are not polluting the water. With many people on social media spreading lies about what we do in agriculture, I had to stand up. I had to stand up and tell our story. I had to try to educate people about how farmers and ranchers take care of not just animals, but the land, water, and resources that we need to raise the animals. I had to tell them how we work with veterinarians and nutritionists and meat scientists to develop the best-tasting, healthiest meat you can find. 
If you join 4-H, you too can learn about the science and technology of agriculture. You will also learn how to speak up for what you believe. Being a leader means standing up for all that matters. Learn more about the Nebraska Extension 4-H Youth Development Program at 4h.unl.edu.